Stanford University. The David H. Liu Lecture Series in Design was created by David's family and has been ongoing for more than 10 years, drawing many of the greatest minds from design from all over the world to speak to Stanford and our community about their work. As is the nature of our program here, the speakers of the Liu Lecture Series come from the vast reaches of the overarching term design. Art, engineering, human-computer interaction, ethnography, branding, architecture, and many other fields all have the common goal of building empathy, reevaluating pre-existing frameworks, and creating interventions or finding salient leverage points to take an existing situation to a preferred one. Designers are visual thinkers who tell stories through their content and build empathy through their expression. I'm particularly honored, thrilled, and tickled to have Myra Kalman visit all the way from New York to share her thoughts with us today. Myra's inspired illustrations have become widely known and loved through the myriad extensions of her storytelling talent. Her illustrations grace the cover of The New Yorker with considerable frequency, and her columns for The New York Times are a uh, destination with welcome respite. Her dozen books are a sincere joy for human beings of all ages and experience. The wristwatches and other artifacts under the M and Co mark are fantastic. And somewhere among these many uh, contributions, Myra teaches at the School of Visual Arts and is the co-founder of the Rubber Band Society, an appreciation group for our favorite desk item. But that's enough for me. Help me welcome Myra Kalman. Thank you. Thank you very much. Is, can you hear me? Is this fine? Mm -hmm. How is this? Is this OK? So what, that's too much. What do I do here to make it not so intense? Like feels like it's really echoing. How's that? Lecture canceled. I'm out of here. Uh, so I was telling David that I thought I was speaking to the physics and philosophy department of Stanford. I decided that's what I was speaking to. So this is all about physics, that my talk. Actually, no, that would be a joke. Um, so so uh, I. I, the way that I work is, oh, I'll show you how I work. This is me. This is how I work. I, I, I smoke a lot of cigarettes and hang out next to a Hello Kitty kind of animal in New York. But actually, this is a good way to show you how I work. That I thought I was going to be a writer when I was a kid, and I decided that I hated my writing, and then I decided it would be really be easy to draw my ideas. And it was the time of New Wave and punk, and it was a kind of uh, narrative cartoon, Saul Steinberg. There was a new, new era of being an illustrator, and I thought, well, I'll do that. I won't write, I'll, but I'll draw. And so I started doing that for about 15 years, and then um, with the opportunity to work on, a, on children's books uh, arrived, and so I did that, and I was able to write and paint again at the same time. But I never wanted to act, I hate plots, and I never was able to focus and never cared about a storyline at all. And all I cared about is, how am I going to tell you my story in the, guise of a, in the guise of a story? Because you have to somehow put it together in a book and sell it to somebody. But basically, everything that I do, everything that I've ever done you know, in, in, in literature, in painting, and in design um, is, has been either the product of a mistake or uh, and the mistakes, you know, the motto is mistakes bring good, that either a mistake or just a journal of my life, and I'm not interested in anything else at all. I'm not interested in a message. I'm not interested in politics. I'm not interested in anything. Just this is what happened to me today, and sometimes it's interesting and sometimes it's not. So I brought this 
chart with me of this Proust, this indispensable chart of Proust's work because uh, I went, well, I'll work a little back, backwards. This, this New York Times uh, blog slash column that I'm doing is about America and the pursuit of happiness. I don't know how many of you have seen it, but each month I go on another trail of you know, what the hell is going on over here, something I never knew or cared about, American history. And, and it's actually been a revelation in many ways because I, I tend towards um, despair. I, I'm a kind of optimistic despairer. I think that's probably what it is. And so uh, something about investigating America and American history and American politics is that there's always some kind of hope that, that, the, that, that in the trajectory of these last few hundred years, the extremes are there, of course, but that doesn't mean that that's the whole story. So it's not either, it's either celestial or hor horrific. It's kind of, well, there are things in the middle and it'll work out. And so I've, um, and so why this chart? I don't remember why, no, so, uh, so I said when I went down to Congress, the incomprehensible visit to Congress, I said that I, ha I was armed with a few things that really comforted me, and one of them that I brought with me was this chart, this crazy, wonderful chart that I read when I bought this book about Proust, and it was Proust's letters to his mother, and they're so completely nuts, one after the other. I mean, they, they had this fantastically complicated relationship, but I thought that it was always important to remember what, what you're not supposed to be doing when you go somewhere. So I did not bring uh, books on American history with me, but I brought a painting of a woman, a photo of a woman dancing and this Proust chart to remind me to, you know, to lighten up about the subject. So, and that really is, I think that's important, that it's always what happens on the way to something that's as divine as what it is. And as a matter of fact, on this trip down to Washington, the first column I did was about the inauguration. And when I went to, when I stopped at the Walt Whitman rest stop on the way down, the bathroom had these little vases of flowers, which I photographed and did a painting of. When I stopped there this time, the flowers were gone. And I said, oh my god, the flowers are gone. What happened? And I spoke to the manager and I said, what happened? What, what happened to the flowers? <laughs> she said, first of all, people were stealing them. So they had to keep replacing them. And then the budget cuts, the recession hit, and no more plastic flowers in the bathroom. So I said, oh my god, it hits, it hits all places. Anyway, that was really... Uh, you know, so talk about not knowing what's going to happen. I'm just going to show you. I'm going to go through a little bit of my work, and then if there are any questions or things, you can we can speak about it later. But uh, in 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 the world of obviously, I, my world is partially in the world of humor, and that it's really important to approach anything that you do with a sense of humor. We did that at M and Company with graphic design. That was you know Tibor's company, and that really, if you didn't have some uh, some component of humor in it. It wasn't interesting, and it wasn't, and it wasn't communicative. So um, after 9-11, when, uh, when um, we were all in this you know, state of shock and, and sorrow, uh, we were, um, my friend Rick Meyerowitz and I were on our way to a party, and we started talking about we're in Bronxist. We were on the way to Westchester. We said, we're in Bronxistan, we're in this Istan, we're in that Istan. And the next thing you know, we said, oh, maybe we have a New Yorker idea here. And then, so that, so these are the first scribbled notes that we made uh, on the train back down to the city. I see fat tushies are already there in the first sketch, but, you know, so we, you know, in burkas, we were fascinated with all these names, and then, of course, I went right to the fashion, and I said, no, it's, you know, the, the burkas are really incredible. But uh, so that, 
moment of not wanting to think about it, not, not saying, oh, well, let's sit down and do something really funny about 9-11, but just the natural conversation that you have with people, which is hopefully the way that things happen, that they're organic, that, you, that anything that you do comes from some natural impulse. And so that became, after a lot of different back and forth, a lot of different, we had, I think we had something like 10 times the number of names that we have on this final map. So. Um, it became, uh, it became a popular thing. There you go. So we left it. And, uh, and um, in, the, in the same spirit of stumbling and finding something, uh, I was, at a, I was at, in Cape Cod at a, at a church bazaar and saw a copy of The Elements of Style there. And I had never, uh, I was an English major and had never used it in school. You can imagine how much I went to school. You know, it was like, it was it was a joke. So, the um, I opened it up. I started reading it, and it was apparent at page two that I was going to do an illustrated version of this book because it was. And what was what was interesting about it is what I responded to was that the people who wrote it, William Strunk and uh, and E. B. White, were completely crazy and full of humor, that it was not by any means a dry, rigid book of rules. I mean, whether you like the book or not, whether there are parts of it that you say, I don't know what they're talking about, whether rules in and of themselves can make you um, frozen and unable to actually produce, that's a whole other conversation. But if you want to know where to put the comma, this is a wonderful book. And so, but each, each sentence, each um, example, was just so full of humor and eccentricity and um, brilliance. So I thought, well, the, my only problem was editing down. I circled, I went through the book and I circled what the examples were and I circled everything and I said, you know, I, this, is, this is gonna be an issue. So I was able to go through it and, uh, I mean, it was a unique egg beater and I love painting egg beaters. I couldn't believe my luck. So, you know, and also, <laughs> Uh, how, who's going to make that sentence in a grammar book? It was a unique egg beater. I mean, how many, what, what's the conversation about an egg beater? So, you know, you immediately understood what a fantastic, wonderful, crazy sense of humor that they had. And, um, and then I also like things that are episodic, very short attention span. Let me go from one thing to the next. I don't like to linger. And so, uh, I'm able to draw, you know, this is Edith Sitwell, and uh, the, the wood is Coco Chanel's lover. Should is Edith Sitwell, and uh, could is, a, is a, an August Sander. Uh, I, I think he was an artist, but I'm not sure. Um, he noticed a large stain right in the center of the rug. So sometimes, uh, you know, I love uh, British murder mysteries, and I like the idea of this, the understated, I'd like to live in a you know, British garden, and I don't know what, and drink tea all day long. So, um, and do you mind me asking a question? Do you mind my asking a question? Do you mind me asking a question? Do you mind my asking a question? You know, so, and um, the, the, guy in, the guy in the pork pie hat is somebody that I saw in a restaurant, and I said, I have to take a picture of you, and so I did, and he became a painting, and the uh, person on the right is Pina Bausch, somebody who I admired tremendously and hoped that I would have a part in one of her ballets, but to no, excuse me, to no avail, though, and she, she died last year. It was a great sadness, but before she died, I, she was in New York, and I said I wanted to interview her for, um, for I don't know what. I said, just let me come and interview her, and they said no. So I said, well, then I'd like to just, I don't want to interview her. I just want to come and take a photo of her in her shoes and do a painting of her shoes because I'm working on a book on the history of shoes. And they said, no. So I said, well, how about 
you just send me the shoes and I'll just photograph the shoes. And the shoes said no. They said no. The shoes, <laughs> the shoes declined to be photographed by you. So I was very sad. And I hated her for a few days and I took to my bed in, a great, in great despair. I did. I took to my bed and I thought all is lost. But then I recovered, so, uh, which you have to do. And um, I have wonderful children who model for me at every turn. So this is my son and another one of his whatever. Uh. And then the, uh, the final page of the book, which is, which is, uh, is the, is the uh, copyright page. And what we decided to do with that was to explode it into uh, the non-rule the non situation. So to, to, to say there is no uh, law about how you handle a book in any way, as there is no law about how you handle any design project. And if you find yourself being bored by something, then that, there's a signal that you have to do something about it. So we decided that we would do this, and the, the designer was Peter Buchanan Smith, and he came up with this fractured and, um, you know, and, and distorted and dis dysfunctional title page. So the editor came back with a note on it that said, not my editor who was wonderful, Anne Godoff, but the copy editor said, this is not allowed. <laughs> <laughs> so really, so, you know, and what was interesting is that uh, now we're having discussion about what's allowed and not allowed in a rule, in a grammar book about rules and how we want to break the rules. And, and it was a big fight and, you know, it was absurd that who would care, who cares where this thing is or, you know, what's allowed and not allowed. Anyway, if the, you know, the battle was won and, um, and we're able to have an, an incomprehensible and annoying title page that people in libraries are not are not happy to have. But there you go. So, um, the the um, the next big pro. I mean, there are lots of projects that go on all the time, and of varying interest. I mean, some of them they're all pretty interesting. But this one really, this was seriously interesting. And the Times asked me to uh, do a blog about whatever I wanted. So I came in there to talk to them and it was a wonderful conversation where I said, oh, well, I don't know what I want to do. And they said, well, what do you want, you know, what could it be about? And I said, I, you know, whatever. And they said, fine. And I said, that's great. And, and <laughs> it really, really was like that. And I made a list of things, you know, the old people, the first 10 things were old people because I just, you know, love old people and I'm, you know, going to be there. And, well, I am there, but so, um, it was important that, that there was the freedom to not know what was going on. And uh, that to wake up in the morning and to say, I have no idea what I'm doing today. I have no idea what's going to be important today. And how to make that into something that isn't uh, tedious. Uh, so somehow the subjects reveal themselves. And, and I develop a little mini obsession for a month. Uh, where I can think of nothing else, but I don't know what, you know, um, the way people make beds. And then, and then the paintings are done and the writing, and then I go on to the next thing, and I forget about, you know, my beds. But one of my, I'll read you, uh, well, I'll go through quickly, I don't know if I'll read you the whole thing, but my, I think my favorite column was the impossibility of February, because as those of you who are from New York, uh, February is a wretched month in New York, and, uh, and all, all hope is lost. So, um, so this begins, and also what was nice is that I did the handwriting with the paintings in, in, in this archaic, here are my paintings, they scan them, I come back the next day, I do the on overlays, jittery handwriting, which has to be corrected, and it's, it's a little bit of a messy uh, process. 
but one that I enjoy. So when I want to be really uh, high tech, I use my typewriter. And, um, and I save all of the brown bags wherever I go to places where I get to go take out stuff. So I, then I write my stuff on these brown paper bags and um, waste not. So the impossibility of February, the man dances on salt. And so the man dances on salt was a story that my cousin told me about a man that she knew who wanted to impress this woman at a nightclub. And he took salt and he threw it all over the floor and he danced on it. She, he, she thought he was a complete idiot. But anyway. So, but it struck me uh, as a very poignant thing. So, and, and, and you know, sad. So the, the man dances on salt. So a package arrives wrapped in newspaper and tied with strips of fabric. And the newspaper has a photo of a man. The man is lying in the snow dead. Okay, so. <laughs> so here's the man. His hat flew off his head. Uh, I hope he's not really dead, just enjoying a refreshing lie down in the snow, but the caption says he is dead. So this is a German newspaper, and the photo is of Robert Walser, who was a, a this is a German newspaper, but it's about a Swiss man. He was a Swiss uh, writer, and he spent most of his life in a mental institution. And given a day of, you can go out for a little saunter, took a walk, dropped dead in the snow. A photographer happens to be walking by at that moment, photographs him, and this becomes a famous photo of this beautiful writer, beautiful, beautiful writer, with these two guys standing in the background, kind of like, hey, what's, you know, what's going on over there? Um, so I, I started reading his books. They're just a few. Jakob van Gunten is one about a boy who goes to a school to become a, a servant. And um, so I decided that I wanted to be a servant too. But not, I mean, not a servant, not, you know, a, a, you know, a maid um, for the Duchess of Devonshire. So I wrote to her and begged, begged her to hire me. And she declined. <laughs> So there's a lot of declining going on. But you know, what are you going to do? You have to try. Um, so there's more, there's more anguish and more sad things. And um, this woman consoling a girl with way too much hair. So I wonder about that. And then the man stands behind the man. And the seated man thinks, for heaven's sake, stop standing behind me. You're driving me mad. It is freezing here, it is February, and it is impossible. Someone has thrown onion skins all over the stairwell. Now I will have to clean them up, though I love to sweep. But still, it is disgusting. <laughs> but all he says is, I have to go soon. And why can't people tell the truth? It is impossible not to lie, and it is February, and not lying is impossible. And it's interesting about lying. I got a little bit of an obsession about lying. Who lie? How often do we lie? Why do we lie? What's a lie? And I once said to my, and my mother said to me, if, we, if everybody told everybody else what they're really thinking, nobody would be speaking to anybody. So I thought, is she saying that everything we think about everybody and everything is awful? And it may be, you know, it may be. I don't know. I mean, I still don't know the answer to that. But So this is about a woman who either, uh, who went mad after she wrote a book. And this is about a woman who's very ill. And these, this is about my mother-in-law and her twin sister in Budapest. And, um, and then I met this monk on the street. And he gave me a card. As I, said, I don't know if you can read this. But he, anyway, he gave me a card that says, he, sh he said I should come to visit him and have a tea ceremony. 
and his card said inner peace center. So I thought, oh, this is fantastic. I'm going to go and have uh, a tea ceremony, and I'm going to find out about inner peace. Then I thought, what if he's crazy, and what if he just made the whole thing up, and what if I get there, he's going to chop me up into little pieces? <laughs> so I didn't go. And then uh, what was interesting was that a friend of mine said to me, don't you think it's actually ironic that you think somebody who gives you a card that says inner peace, you think it's going <laughs> to chop you up into little pieces. But I thought that it was, well, you know, it's, it's New York. Anyway, so, so, but here, excuse me, I said, I will go there in February for a tea ceremony. Does he actually know more than I do about inner peace? If he met my relatives, would he have a nervous breakdown? <laughs> And what about his relatives? Do they drive him nuts? And then I arrive at the universal truth, which I say every day, 10 times a day. The truth is, everybody gets on everybody's nerves. It's inevitable. It's unavoidable. I'm sorry, but that's the truth. And um, my parents, who I don't think had ever spoke to each other the entire time I knew them, uh, and they were married. Uh, it's a beautiful marriage. Uh, my parents had a tea party in 1963 for unknown reasons. Uh, there was zero inner peace at this party. Uh, my parents were barely speaking, and um, the woman on the left had a prickly mustache. I mean, you know, there was other stuff going on that, uh, that, that was very memorable. And uh, I was playing the piano. Uh, the heart breaks. Someone does or does not go mad. It is February, and all is forgiven, I think. And the cake? I believe it was a mocha cream cake from Mother's Bakery on Johnson Avenue in Riverdale, New York. So, um, so here's the mocha cream cake, and there are 30 of them over here. Uh, when I was through, well, I have to back up a little bit, but when I was through doing the elements of style, what happened was that I was singing when I was working, and then I decided there would be a little mini opera, a little cycle of songs, and I, knew, I was lucky enough to be friends with this incredible composer, Nico Muley, who some of you may have heard of, who's completely genius. And so we created, uh, he composed from, from the text uh, uh, nine songs that we performed at the New York Public Library in the main reading room. And I, we, there were a group of us, the uh, Omit Needless Words Orchestra, that played found objects that I collected, clattering teacups and saucers and the typewriter and climbing up a ladder and smacking books. And that was supposed to represent all the ephemera and all the vernacular of just what happens when you're not real, a real musician, but you want to make music as a counterpoint to singers and other musicians. And it was really a beautiful evening. Then we collaborated again where he took the text from the Principles of Uncertainty and created an opera. And after the opera, we went out and had the 30 mocha cream. Then we had mocha cream cakes, which I ordered from this same bakery in Riverdale, which, thank God, still exists. And so uh, when you walked out of there, this, this was just this visual that I thought was pretty fantastic, 30 mocha cream cakes. So um, usually, having a cake is, uh, is a good answer to a situation if you if you don't know what to do, uh, bake a cake. Uh, the, then there was a two-year hiatus from the New York, then I finished the New York Times piece and they, you know, there was a nice conversation of what do I want to do next and what I'd like to stay. And uh, it's always nice to be asked. And I said, no, 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 I couldn't possibly talk about myself for another minute. And it was really horrifying to think about it. So um, a few years went by. And then when I went back to there to talk to them, What's interesting, what's going on, clearly something big was going on, and so uh, with the inauguration began a conversation about America and about 
history and about you know what is it that people are living in now and what's the mood so and each piece is a snapshot of a certain aspect of American history. So this was going down to, oh, and you'll see the painting. This, this was going down to the inauguration for, to, you know, as a journalist. And, and it's nice being a journalist because um, it's like Lois Lane. You know, you, you pick up your pad and you run out and you don't know. You know, I would like to be sent to a mortician's conference and, or things like that, you know, that you don't know anything about the subject, but you know that you're going to ob obtain some kind of essential something, or you hope you will. It's a snapshot, so. So the um, driving down, um, driving down the New Jersey Turnpike, past all the industrial sludge, which is which I adore. I just photographed the first thing I photographed today when I came into Berkeley was a big mound of dirt. Not Berkeley, Stanford, right? Stanford. Um, <laughs> so. Um, Anyway, so hallelujah for the Walt Whitman, and there it is, the sink with the said with the flowers, and you know, it really gives you a little lift in life when people care that much, and then when it's gone, you think those small things that make such a difference, it's really very sad. So we arrived in Washington, and we went to a, an incredible uh, ceremony that was Martin Luther King Day, a side trip to see a, uh, a butter painting by Antoine Vallon, the National Gallery, with not one but two eggs. And then the guard that was there, who I photographed and talked to for a bit. And then there were um, Jefferson in person. There, there were presenters. There were people there. It was the holiday. So there were people presenting at the museum who stand around and just kind of say, how, how, you know, my good woman, how do you do? So it was very nice to, to see them. And that was my first time that, that I met Jefferson. So... Uh, and, uh, you know, so then I wander around, and there's this phenomenal Fortuny dress uh, in, in their archive. And, um, you know, looking at Jefferson's books in the library of the, at the Library of Congress, looking at the tassels at the Library of Congress. Um, and then I asked them whether I could uh, hold, this is before the inauguration, if I could hold the, the Bible that, so, they, that Lincoln, it was Lincoln's, and then I held it, and then it was uh, Barack Obama. <laughs> so I thought, that's nice. You know, it's like, it was like a sandwich. I thought that was excellent. <laughs> it, was a small, it was a small thing, and it was a quite a beautiful object. And, you know, to, to hold those objects, I mean, talk about Lincoln, and there's a lot of Lincoln stuff later, but... Um, and then I thought this was fantastic. And the woman, Renata, asked me why on the Bible, why not on the Constitution. I thought, that's really an incredible question. So, you know, the, the notion that if you grow up in a, in a kind of, in a world where you're cynical about politics and cynical about politicians, and then all of a sudden two million people are f waving flags like crazy people with tears and, and, and complete euphoria, you think this is extraordinary that, that you know, you could feel that kind of pride again in a, in a country where I don't remember, I mean, you know, certainly coming from the 60s, when, when was the last time anybody ever felt that? So, on a, on a national level, so it was quite extraordinary to be there. And then the really unbelievable moment was when the helicopter, we're standing next to the Capitol and the helicopter, all of a sudden this, you know, army helicopter goes up taking Bush away. And the, the roar that came from the crowd of seeing him go away was almost as much, maybe, maybe even more so than when Obama uh, came onto the stage. And it was a poignant moment anyway. So, um, 
and then and then looking at a tree and saying the tree doesn't know what's going on. The tree is just there, and uh, that's a good thing that the tree doesn't know. I don't want the tree to get upset and involved in politics. So, um, <laughs> so, um, are we okay on time? Should I do a little bit more? Okay, I'll, I'll zip through this quickly. Um, so. So, Mr. A. Lincoln, I started working for the Rosenbach Library doing a piece on Lincoln, which became the piece for the New York Times. And, uh, and on the way, I stopped. So I went down to the Rosenbach to research, and I stopped, and I paid with a Lincoln and two Washingtons, which I thought was very funny. Um, again, being in a library and taking, you know, saying, here's our archive. Do what you need to do and, uh, and do your research. So I'm, you know, <laughs> when I look at what I wrote, I wrote, you know, M. Kalman, M. Kalman. I don't know what I was, I don't know what I was thinking, but I wasn't thinking very much about, you know, I was just responding to the, to the note, to the, to the ephemera that was there, the letters, and they were so beautiful. Um, <clears throat> so the pieces were fragile and moving, and, um, and so the more I read about them, the more, you know, I say I won't claim to have read, there are over 15,000 books have been written about Lincoln. I won't claim to have read them all or even any. But it became clear as I tumbled into his world that he had a magnetic appeal. And, you know, clearly Lincoln has a very, I, I probably of all of the people, Lincoln is the one that everybody, well, I don't know. Does, is, does everybody love Lincoln the most? I don't know. We should take a vote about who loves, you know, who loves who. But I looked deep into his eyes and found that I was falling in love, in love with A. Lincoln. And then right away, I revert to 16. <laughs> it's really funny, you know, then I was in, it's funny that you're in sixth grade immediately. Um, I just imagine the whole thing. He loved me, Mary Todd was wrong for him, so wrong. If only we had met, oh my God, what a love affair it would have been. But um, anyway, so you can dream. Uh, and so I, what I do is that, that, that in researching the piece, I was able, this is the actual pistol um, that killed him while he was watching this stupid British comedy. And um, you probably all know this, but John Wilkes Booth waited for the moment when they had the biggest laugh in the play so he could shoot you know, with some cover of sound. Uh, he was in this rocking chair. Um, and you know, also the question of how does somebody become a genius on the level that he did with one year of school uh, he, he had a mother who adored, his stepmother really adored him, and she let him dream, and she let him read, and he didn't want to do his chores, and he didn't want to be the, the, the he really want, was something else, and she saw that in him right away. So he, um, he went to school for a year, but basically taught himself everything, and, um, and I was told the story that he was kicked by a mule, uh, and he was unconscious for a few days, and then he got up and woke up, and then he said, well, he obviously became a lawyer because he was kicked in the head by a mule, but um, maybe not. So I went there, I went to Springfield, and everything, of course, is Lincoln. And there's, nothing, there's nothing that isn't Lincoln, and you know, like Lincoln Land answering service, but uh, went to visit him in the cemetery, stayed at the Mary Todd Lincoln room of a local bed and breakfast, which was a wretched place. Um, but there were, there were little photos of, I mean, little paintings of her on the wall. Uh, <laughs> met A. Lincoln. So when I was there, we go to breakfast, and this man walks in, Mr. Lincoln, and it turns out that he was a Lincoln presenter, and that he was there on holiday. And he wasn't working, he was just hanging out, you know, being a wonderful, uh, you know, lover of history and uh, a great man. So we spoke to him for a bit. And then I've met uh, uh, four 
Lincoln presenters. There were 150, and I was going to go to their, to their uh, convention where all of the Lincoln and all of the Mary Todd Lincolns have a big ball, and they all, in period dress, get together. And I thought, that would be an extraordinary sight. But at any rate, it, it was not to be. So um, traveled to Gettysburg, uh, read a lot of the work, you know, obviously the speeches that are part of what our life is today and how he had the ability to do what he did during the Civil War is, you know, something absurd. And then we are overwhelmed, so we go to the Lincoln Diner, of course. And at the Lincoln Diner, there are only two Lincoln-related items on the menu. French toast a la Lincoln, an Italian sub Lincoln style, which I mean, which was actually incomprehensible because if you do any research at all, you can find out in five minutes what Lincoln's favorite dishes were, and you you could actually put them on the menu in this place that's completely about Lincoln. But no, they chose the two things that have nothing to do not only with Lincoln but with America. I mean, actually, you know, so it was incomprehensible in a in not in a good way. I wasn't. I didn't. I thought they were stupid. But at any rate. Um, the rotating cake display does not include Lincoln's favorite, the white cake that Mary baked for him. And then, you know, you couldn't wonder about, did he love his wife? Opinions differ, maybe, did he, did, despite her explosive temper uh, and out of control spending. You know, he, she ended up in a mental institution, maybe a lot of you know that, that, that their son, because her spending got so out of control, I mean, that's the story, that he had to, he had to prove her insane so he could take over the, all of the finances, and so he had her committed. So she ends up in, a, I mean, after she survived three children dying and her husband assassinated in front of her, she ends up in a mental institution, which she finally left, but uh, she really was a broken person after that. So, um, you know, then I wonder if they have nicknames for each other, like Little Dumpling or Plumpy, and what did she call him, Linky or Pokey? You know, I don't know. Um, and, you know, other things that I found out about, that they had a dog named Fido and that he loved apples and she kept a bowl of apples on his desk. So it was interesting to research the kind of apples that were there then and to talk about the different um, kinds of apples that you can still buy in the farmer's market there. And he loved music. And so then you find out he loved music very much and he loved Mozartists and um, and you think, how did, how did that, I expected that he would like some kind of barn dance thing, but in fact, he had incredibly sophisticated taste and he would go to the opera and, uh, and music really soothed him and he loved Shakespeare. And um, you know, he may have enjoyed the ever so delicate plomping around the stage of Laura Leclerc and she was a hefty woman, but charming. <laughs> and then to look around, what else was happening around the world that, you know, um, you know, this, so the serfs are freed in Russia, and um, you know, of course, I mean, obviously, the French Revolution is way before, and um, Japan is saying, you know, keep out of here. I don't want any foreigners here. So there's tremendous amount of upheaval going on around the world, and um, and then I wonder, you know, what if his hat compared to Lincoln's and his beard compared to the Czar's mustache? And all of this history makes me want to embrace Lincoln and bring him into my world. And I imagine us walking around New York and we would go straight to the Museum of Modern Art. And maybe we'd look at self-portraits of portraits by Frida Kahlo. And maybe we'd go to a Fred Sandbeck installation and show him that, you know, this, the, the, a philosopher and an artist uh, of string. And then I, I think he would not be dismissive of this philosopher of string and space, but he might make a joke about art. And then we would go to the Baked Potato King for a bite no fancy restaurant for us. 
and after that we would go home, and of course home is the Lincoln Memorial, so. Um, and I would confess to him that I would love to live in the Lincoln Memorial, just a simple cot in the center of the space, and I would make my bed and sweep and drink tea, and my neatness and happy aspect would amuse him, and in the evening I would embroider his words onto fabric, <clears throat> words that seem so apt today. The occasion is piled high with difficulty, as our case is new, so we must think anew and act anew, and we must disenthrall ourselves, and then we shall save our country, 1862. And um, so that's something that I embroidered in a year of mad embroidery. This is one of the things that I embroidered. So um, somewhere along the way, I stumbled upon this very famous poster from World War II. Uh, maybe, uh, maybe Winston Churchill said this, I'm not sure, though he did say never, 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 never give in, which is a good thing uh, to remember. And uh, so this poster that I did a painting of Keep Calm and Carry On is something that I, I think people have to tell themselves many times a day. And, uh, and so there you go, that's what I leave you with. And I think that's the end, that's the end of my talk. Um, I didn't talk about industrial design at all because I don't know anything about it. Um, so we'll do some question and answer. Uh, there's a microphone here. That, that's good. I think that's a yes. Um, so if you have questions, maybe you could line up at this, at this microphone, at this pillar here, and uh, we'll take as many as, as possible. At the pillar. Right over here. Is the question Okay. They're getting the food. They're not, they're not okay. <laughs> well, I never. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, that's fine. Can you can you repeat the question? Sure. Okay, because it's for the video. Confused. Thank you very much. Uh, well, the, uh, the question is, well, uh, what's the process? How much extraneous stuff do I have in what I present to the Times? Or do I go through my, in my own sad way before I present it to the Times? Well, it doesn't matter. Anyway, I, um, <clears throat> I go through hundreds of photographs. And, it's, uh, and I always, each time I start my piece, I say, I have nothing to say. I don't understand what happened here. I'm not going to do it. And then I say, okay, I'll do, you know, I'll do something. And then, of course, 50 images later, they can't shut me up. So the process is I, I do too much. I, I go through too many photographs. I do too many sketches. And then I have to edit and edit and edit until it's something that I hope is concise and actually says something in that way. But once I give it to the Times, my, I have really wonderful editors there, David Shipley and Mary Doonwald, and they basically understand what it is. They, they allow me to digress, and they understand that I should have the Proust chart in this piece about Congress. Because you, somebody could say, excuse me, what's that doing there? So I mean, you know, it's not that far-fetched that they understand how I think. And um, so in the end, there, there isn't that much cutting at all. I mean, it's mo mostly, you know, where the hell is the comma that was supposed to be there kind of thing. But I mean, a little bit of discussion about editing sometimes, but not much. 
so they, they rely on me. Well, I never brainstorm. That's, <laughs> I mean, I, you know, everybody has a different process. And I, what I like to think about is not thinking. And I don't mean that I'm not thinking, obviously. But what I like to, I'd like to just go through my imagery and see what jumps out at me. When I, when I respond instinctively to something, then I know that that makes sense. If I'm trying to make something fit because it should do something, then I think it's a mistake. And plus, I'm not enjoying it. I mean, it really is about if I'm enjoying the process, whatever image I'm enjoying, I'll want to put in my piece, and I'll find a way to kind of finesse it into it. So, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm also uh, the kind of person that, that jumps from thing to thing, and I see, oh, look at the shoes, and look at that, and look at the person, and look what they said. So I can absorb a lot of different pieces of information and then just string them together and string them together. So I don't, it's not a process about thinking so much about it. I mean, well, I have to write it. But I'm hoping that it comes from a place where, where it isn't too, too thought, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I never do it on my computer. I wouldn't know. How, I wouldn't know how to do it. I print them out. You know, bad printing. I carry them with me in my bag. I go to a cafe. I have a notebook of you know that I always carry with me the sketches. So I'm always laying it out the way you'd lay out a book. You know. And and I like and I like the feeling. I put things on cards and uh, it's it's a good way to work from for me. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, it was a counterpoint to painting. That was my cool down, as I called it. And uh, I went to a psychic community up, up way upstate to, uh, just to see what it was like with some friends. And you, 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 it's like a summer camp full of psychics. And you make an appointment, and you go see different psychics, and they tell you different things. So I went to one, and the psychic said to me after a session of, I don't, I don't even remember what it was. She said to me at the end, she said, I have one more thing to tell you. And she said, uh, don't cry over spilt milk. So I said, really? That's the, that's the w wisdom? That's what we got here? Don't cry over spilt milk? And I thought it was so unbelievable. And then I thought, yeah, she's right. Don't cry over spilt milk. Anyway, so I wrote it down. I, um, I embroidered it on a piece of paper in my sketchbook just because I don't know why. I, had, I was sewing. I had a needle or a thread with me. And then I thought, I like fabric. I collect fabrics and linens and just fabrics. And I have stacks and stacks of them. And then, you know, it was, it was uh, putting something together that uh, was a different thing from painting. And the, it's very slow work. And I was trying to figure out a way to slow down time. And um, because everything seems to be going so quickly that the nature of doing something that's very time consuming, uh, sewing, embroidery. So that's what I did for a year as, you know, with painting. And I'm still doing, and now I'm going to do a, a sewing of this Proust chart because I'm just so nuts about it. Yeah. 
Yes. Well, I had, I had beautiful penmanship in sixth grade, and I actually—I always thought that I, you know, I spent many years with my Parker pen, writing the alphabet. No, I didn't study calligraphy, and but you know, of course, you look around you, and there's, the, and of course, being in being in the world of design and being exposed to all of that, you start to look at typefaces and the the, the what that is, and so you know, handwriting has a long history in art and in graphic design and in children's books, so. It just felt like a natural thing, and and uh, so I. Some of it depends on my mood. Sometimes I use a thick, you know, thicker, thinner brush, a pen, whatever it feels like. Um, the Lincoln thing, I think I did with a brush. It was a little bit more calligraphic, you know. I don't know what. I don't know what I, you know. Uh, there you are. <laughs> Well, I actually, so there, uh, writing for children and painting for children is wonderful because you can be stupid, and I mean that in the best possible way, you know, that you can be silly and smart and all of those things. But then I thought I really wanted to uh, do work for adults and, you know, more, more journalism so that I was able to pursue more things like that. But, um, but then, uh, so now, I don't know if you know Lemony Snicket, but I'm sure those of you who have kids do, so now I just illustrated a children's book that he wrote. And that'll come out sometime next year, and then some of the some of the pieces from this from this column will be uh, children's books. The Lincoln, the I don't know what else. Jefferson. We'll see. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Go and invent something. <laughs> That's really funny. Uh, the question is, you know, what what uh, what inspirations led up to what I wrote in that post? Uh, Don't mope in your room, invent something, which is the American the American message. Um, what happened that led up to it? I don't know. I found a rubber band on the street. I was really excited. Uh, <laughs> I knit a uh, TV cozy with a pom-pom on top. <laughs> not much. Not much <laughs> happened. <laughs> not much happened. But you know, but I think that I think that I, I think that everybody I think it's a miracle that everybody gets up in the morning and does anything. I think it's a complete miracle that this world is functioning. And I don't know how anybody does anything. So for me, uh, my day, you know, I I when I've done, when I've gotten up and uh, happily gone out and wandered around and done some work and found things that I think are beautiful or funny, um, that's all I need. So nothing, nothing extraordinary happened. If I think of something, I'll let you know, but I don't think so. Uh, I read the obituaries in the morning. You know that. It's a good way to start the day. Actually, that is a good way to start the day. And it makes me feel like I better not mope in my room and I better invent something before I die. You know, so <laughs> it's just a pleasant way to motivate you.
Yeah. How do you start piecing together the narrative? Piecing all these things of ephemera where it's horrible. Yeah. It's horrible, horrible, horrible. <laughs> How do I piece together the, the narrative from all of the ephemera? It's horrible. It's really horrible. And the interesting thing about feeling horrible is that uh, I'm I feel horrible every month. And, and I never learned from the month before that it's going to be OK. I feel horrible again. And I think that's the process that, I, that as, you know, as an artist, to not have any idea what you're going to do, to really be lost, and to have to create something, knowing that once you get there, once I start to paint, well, I know how to paint. You know, I can do it, more or less. You know, I know how to do the writing. Uh, you know, I speak English. So for better or for worse, though, once I did a piece for the New York Times and the query from the editor was, is English your second language? So, <laughs> so oh my God, what have I written? It was all, you know, the sentences were a tad, you know, Gertrude Steinish. They were askew. But um, uh, I, I truly am in terrible suffering mode. And then uh, the deadline is a beautiful inspiration. And you have to sit down and just do something. And that's what happens. I just sit down and I do something, and I can't, you know, and I'm throwing up my hands. And then I say, Oh yeah, oh yeah, okay, I, oh yeah, this is this was good. This is, I mean, this is good in the sense that I, I have a direction. I kind of shuffle things about. I also don't have that much time, you know. I have I have to do the whole thing in about two weeks, two two to three weeks is my maximum. So, which looks, you know, you can see that a lot of the times, superficial analysis of things, but. But that's what happens. You just have to plunge in, and after you, you moan and, and weep. How do you feel after you finish a project? <laughs> I'm euphoric. Uh, after I finish a project, project I literally I deliver it to the Times. I could sail out the window and fly home like a little butterfly. I'm, I'm the happiest person on earth. Uh, the, nothing like it. So, it's, so I, recommend, I highly recommend finishing projects <laughs> and getting them the hell out of there. You know, going on to the next thing. How long does that last? I don't know, an hour, <laughs> an hour and a half. Isn't that a lot? Yeah, that's kind of a few hours. Maybe there's a celebratory dinner that night of more, and then the next morning it's oh my god, I have to start the next one. Oh my god, what am I going to do? <laughs> you'd think, I, you know, you'd think I was, you know, inventing, I don't know what, but, yeah. Um, when you finish a project, how, I mean, let's say you are almost finished, you look at the project and you say, should I just finish it so I can celebrate, or should I just put a lot more work into it to make it perfect? What, what approach uh, do you take to finish a project? I, well, it's not either or. I mean, sometimes I actually uh, will finish it and, it and I'll think it's good. But uh, the, you know the the way that I approach a project is that I hope it's good, and if I'm really really tired and <laughs> I could have done another painting, but I say I don't need to. Uh, I don't know. I, I sort of stick to what I I stick to what I set out to do, and I hope I did it the best I could. So I'm not looking for not doing it towards the end. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, usually I say, I want this to be really fantastic. Not like, oh, well, you know, it's all right. It's good enough. Uh, I really, I, you know, whether I succeed or not, what I want it to be is fantastic. So, <laughs> who knows? Yes. 
I think that my, well, I went to uh, the library with my, my mother took me to the library and we started at A and went around the room. But the, but clearly the, the most important book to me when I was, was Pippi Longstocking. And I think that for a girl to read about this crazy girl who could do anything she wanted, I said, that's, that's the ticket. Uh, then um, The Secret Garden, all the, all the Madeline books, uh, the Eloise books, um, Winnie the Pooh, you know, I mean, the, and Alice in Wonderland, which of course, the greatest one of all, Alice in Wonderland. But then as, as, as an older person to my kids, um, William Steig, I think, is the reigning genius of children's books in, in the decades. He died recently, but William Steig was, you know, I mean, there are many, 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 but, the, but, but Pippi, I think. <laughs> Um, well, uh, many. I mean, clearly there's Matisse and there's Saul Steinberg, uh, Duchamp in, in some conceptual ways. Um, uh, I, in the world of going towards illustration, uh, Charlotte Salomon, uh, Ludwig Bemelmans. I mean, but you know, I mean, every great, Bernard, uh, uh, many uh, wonderful painters that I couldn't even begin to. So, you know, it, then we go into the illustration classification, so I wouldn't have to compare myself to them. But um, those are probably the bigger, the bigger ones. And then in photography also. I mean, photography, in a way, influences me as much as painting. And I, I look at a lot of photographs, and I paint, you know, other people's photographs, my photographs. So uh, in, though, in that world, August Sander, Dan Arbus, um, are two really big ones for me, which w people who show a kind of a, a stark realism with, a, with, with some kind of a, a, an understanding of absurdity and the askewness of things. But there are a lot of other people. Yeah. I can, uh, the Rubber Band Society was begun with a conceptual artist uh, named Alex Melamed, who was part of a team called Komar and Melamed. And some of you may know their work. They did, they're the ones that did the uh, survey of what people like to see in a painting, what scene, what person. And then they did the composite, you know, George Washington standing in front of a waterfall. What did I say before? With Bambi, you know, that kind of thing. They were, they, they, they were showing the nature of painting. And he and I just met one day, and we both just realized how much we love rubber bands. And uh, we all, I also loved bobby pins. I could have easily started the Bobby Pin Society, but somehow rubber bands became what we did. And so we had events and things in a newspaper devoted solely to the love of uh, rubber bands. Then we disbanded, as they say. <laughs> Kackleman. The inspiration was that I went to Japan, and uh, you know everything is about what I did. So I, I had a show in Japan, and I decided that I would do a book about it. And I made my kids the protagonists because I needed a, some kind of storyline. And then my kids thought that they had gone to Japan, which is really funny and sad, uh, when they hadn't. So later on, they would, I, heard, I overheard them telling people that they had gone to Japan, and I said, "No, you didn't." And they said. <laughs> But the book, uh, so, should we done? We have time for one more, and then, 
Yeah. Well, I'm, you know, that's, it's all, uh, you know, how do I catalog and how do I organize the, 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 the ephemera and the, um, the references? And, you know, the, there's a, a big conversation that we were having about stuff and how much stuff people have and what you collect and what you need and all of those questions that are becoming very pressing, you know, where are you going to store that? But I have tens of thousands of photographs and scraps and things. And a lot of it is actually organized. So I'm always collecting imagery that's amazing. And people are sending me stuff, you know, the way you just kind of collect stuff. And then when I'm focusing on a subject, I'm also taking a lot of photographs and I'm getting books about the subject. So there's kind of a physical immersion in a subject. And then I can say, oh, I remember that, that, that photo of that woman with the great hat. And I, I'm, oh, I'd like to throw that into my talk. How am I going to do that? And you know, my piece. And, and um, so there's, I remember a lot of it. And then I forget a lot of it. And it's in drawers and cataloged. And um, you know, it's, it's, it's a museum of uh, references, so, which is pleasant because there's no end to it. That's the nice part. There's no end to really fascinating, wonderful stuff. And so uh, the problem is where to put it. You know, so. I think we're done. The dog says we're, that dog says we're done. That's a cute dog. Thank you. Thank you. So thank you, everyone, for coming. Um, there are two more speakers in the Lou Lecture series. The, the next one is on. Um, Let's see, the ninth, the ninth, it's on a Monday, this Monday, and it's Genevieve Bell. She's the Director of User Experience at Intel. Um, she uses cultural anthropology to decide the future of technology, which is a pretty nice task to have. Um, and then after, after that, the week after is uh, Wednesday, November 18th, is Ben Fry, who is a, a doctoral graduate from MIT Media Lab, um, wrote, literally wrote the book on data visualization, developed processing, which is a, a predecessor of the Arduino microcontroller platform, et cetera. And, and Myra's going to illustrate the uh, user guide. <laughs> um, we can talk about it. Uh, so so um, if you want to stay up to date with everything, you can, you can just go on Google or whatever your preferred search engine is and uh, type in Lou Lectures, L-I-U. Lectures. Uh, there's a Google group. You can get on the email list. There's uh, a Blogspot blog. You can get the RSS feed or, or pick up on the photographs. And um, these talks are all being filmed, and they will eventually end up on Stanford, iTunes, University. So uh, if you stay up to date with the blog and, and the Google group, you'll find out all about that. But thank you so much for coming, and maybe a last round of applause. Thank you. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.